Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God for our meditation this evening is taken from the letter to the Hebrews chapter 5, reading verses 7 through 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This is the word of our God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is it possible for something to be too good, too great, too perfect? A couple of years ago, a girls' basketball team in Minnesota was kicked out of their league. They weren't kicked out for cheating or for poor sportsmanship or something like that. They were kicked out because they were too good. The rest of the teams in the league got together and said, we're sick and tired of playing against you and always losing to you. And so they just booted them out of the league. What about our Lord Jesus? Is it possible for him to be too good, too great, too perfect to be our high priest and our savior? I mean, if you think about it, the high priest was supposed to be able to relate to the people that he served. In fact, just a few verses before our text, we read these words. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. So is Jesus so great that he can't deal with us gently? Is he so perfect that he can't deal with us profoundly imperfect people gently and with care? That was something that was on the minds of the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written. And it's an issue addressed by the author of this letter. He addresses it in our text for this evening. He assures them that Jesus is indeed the perfect high priest. But that means he is exactly the priest that we need. We see his perfection this evening both in the way that Jesus prayed and in the way that he obeyed. When I read our text and I came to those words, made perfect, did that trouble you? Did that seem like a way we should be talking about our Lord Jesus? As if there was a time when he was imperfect, and then through experience, through trial and error, he got to a point where he was perfect. Well, that's not what the author intends at all. To understand this, we really need to just take a walk through our text. It begins this way. During the days of Jesus' life on earth. Literally, during the days of his flesh. Which means the author is pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is true man. As true man, Jesus did what we human beings do. He prayed to his heavenly Father. When the author tells us that he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, he takes us back to Gethsemane. In that garden, we see very clearly that our Lord Jesus is truly man, with a human body and a human soul. In fact, he even said to his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so Jesus prayed. His human lips cried out, his human eyes shed tears, his human face was bathed in sweat. But of course, we know very well that Jesus isn't just man, he is also truly God. And the writer of our text brings that out too. He says, son though he was, he was also the son of God himself praying in that garden. 
And so as the Son of God, he knew exactly what was coming. He knew what lie ahead. As true God, Jesus knew the bitter cup of suffering that he was about to drink. What a crushing weight of guilt was on our Lord's soul. Over these past several weeks, we've been watching the news and seeing images of Nicholas Cruz, that very troubled young man who took a gun and killed 17 students and teachers in that high school in Florida. If you've seen the images of him sitting there in the courtroom, he almost never looks up. He's staring down at the floor. Probably tremendous amount of guilt is on his heart. And we've seen that kind of behavior before. If you're watching the news and you see a criminal come out of a court building, very often, as soon as they see the cameras, they they put up their hands and try to hide their faces because so great is their shame. Jesus Christ bore the shame and the guilt of all people of all time. Nicholas Cruz and Jeffrey Dahmer and Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and you and me. He bore all that guilt on his heart. You know what it's like to feel guilty, how it just turns your stomach in knots and won't give you any peace, won't allow you to sleep at all at night? Well, consider that Jesus, in his conscience, had crying out the voices of billions of sinners. He felt their guilt. He carried their shame, our shame. And he knew what he was going to have to face because of it. The white-hot anger of a holy God. Nevertheless, what did Jesus do? He got up. He rose from the dust in which he was praying, and he went. He went out to Judas and the mob. And then he went to the kangaroo courts of Pilate and Caiaphas. And then he went all the way to the cross. And my friends, the kicker is, he did this on purpose. According to a plan that was made long before the creation of the world, he went willingly. So great is his love for us. So focused was his desire for our salvation. Jesus is truly our perfect high priest. He's the Son of God. He's holy. When the angel told Mary that she was going to be giving birth to God's Son, he referred to Jesus as the Holy One to be born of you. Now, you can't be a a little bit holy any more than you can be a little bit pregnant. Mary was pregnant with the Holy One of God. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we heard the Father confirm all of this for us. He said, This is my Son. With Him I am well pleased. Jesus gets an E for excellent or a P for perfect on His report card, not an N for needs improvement because there simply is no space for improvement. Jesus is our holy and perfect high priest. So if Jesus is so holy and so perfect, then why did he pray to the one who could spare him from death and ask him to take away the cup of suffering which he was about to drink, if at all possible. I mean, how could Jesus not have known that this was the only way that the world could be saved? And while we're talking about this, how can the author of our text talk about Jesus as one who learned obedience? There's a mystery here, but the simplest answer to these questions lies in the fact that Jesus humbled himself. He was in his state of humiliation from the time of his conception all the way until he came back to life and rose. Our Lord Jesus humbled himself. He gave up the full use of his divine power and glory. He humbled himself to the point that he, the creator of all the angels, 
had to be strengthened by an angel to continue on his mission. This Jesus, my friends, God's perfect Son, his holy Son in humble humanity, is our perfect high priest. Yes, he prayed to the one who could save him from death, but he never rebelled against his Father. The prayer that Jesus spoke was spoken in recoil and not in refusal. If you want to think of it this way, Jesus reacted to that terrible cup of suffering that he was going to have to drink, almost like a small child would react to a spoonful of nasty, disgusting, bitter medicine offered to him by his mother. But what did our Lord Jesus do? He held his nose and he took the medicine. And because he did, we are healed. Remember how he ended his prayer. He said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. How different that is from you and I. I mean, so often we pray in our hearts, we won't say it out loud, but we say in our hearts, my will be done, because we know what we want. And we want to go out and get it. And that's reflected so often in the way that we talk and how we spend our money and the way we use our time, the things that we do and the things that we leave undone. As we heard a little while ago, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, his own will. It's so very hard to pray, Lord, your will be done and actually mean it. But my friends, thanks be to God, because our great high priest, Jesus Christ, prayed that prayer and he meant it. Our substitute prayed perfectly in our place. But he not only prayed perfectly, he obeyed perfectly. If it's hard to say your will be done and mean it, and it is, then it's probably infinitely harder to actually do the will of God. I think that's what the writer of this letter was getting at when he wrote these words. He says, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. The writer there takes us from Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed for God's will to be done, all the way to Golgotha, where actually J Jesus carried out God's will. In that sense, he learned obedience. Obedience became went from something that was kind of theoretical to something that was completely tangible and practical. He actually experienced carrying out God's will, something he had never experienced before in this way. I mean, he experienced the thorns and the fists and the mockery. He experienced the nails, the crucifixion, and finally he experienced death and the grave. To use an imperfect illustration, if you talked to a, a young couple on their wedding day and said, are you willing to give up your lives for each other, to be totally committed to each other, to love each other, and to put the other's needs before your own, they will readily and with smiles on their faces say, I will. But then six months later, and the husband has to give up his fishing trip that he's gone on for the last 10 years, for the first time in 10 years, because his wife is asking him to take care with their money because of the bills, and she wants to be very careful with that. And she has to call her girlfriends and say, I'm not coming out for our regular uh, lunch dates, again, because she wants to take care of those bills. That's what real obedience in real life is like. It, it means painful self-denial and self sacrifice. And that's sadly something that we are often strangers to. We don't always carry out the will of God. We don't keep our vows, our confirmation vows and our wedding vows. We fail over and over again. But again, dear brothers and sisters, be comforted because Jesus never failed. 
He always carried out God's will without even a single failure. Jesus said, I will, and then he did. He obediently went to where his Father sent him. He went to the cross, scorning its shame, and there our high priest offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of the whole world. Our text tells us, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. You know, a better translation there for made perfect might be something like when he reached his goal or when he finished his work. Finished, that's a word that we think about at this time of year during the season of Lent because we hear our Savior speak it from the cross. In John chapter 19, we hear him say, It is finished, which means every sin is paid for in full. Salvation is accomplished. Interestingly, the word finished in John 19 and the word perfect here in our text have the same Greek root, which means they mean basically the same thing. So yes, basically our text is saying that Jesus has finished his work. Think about how important that is. If Jesus had prayed in the garden, Lord, your will be done perfectly, but then failed to go to the cross. If he prayed perfectly, if he he fulfilled God's will perfectly in our place, but then didn't go and shed his priceless blood to pay for the sins of the world, he would not be our Savior, he would not be our perfect high priest, and we would not be saved. But he didn't fail. He obeyed his Father's will. He went to the cross. And so now he is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. There's another word that maybe troubles us a little bit. For all who obey him. Pastor, I've learned since I was little that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that has nothing to do with how we live or our works or our obedience. How can our text say this? Well, that's exactly right, my friends, but what we need to understand is that in a way, faith is obedience. This is what St. John wrote in his first epistle. This is God's command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, God not only invites us to believe in Jesus, he commands it. He requires faith in Christ, something that we can never give to him by our own power. So in grace heaped upon grace, God gives us what he commands and requires and invites us to have. He gives us faith in Jesus Christ through the working of his spirit in word and sacrament so that we turn away from ourselves and our works and rely only on Christ, our perfect high priest. That he is. We see it tonight in the way that he prayed. We see it in the way he obeyed. Our perfect high priest, and my friends, let me assure you again, not too perfect, not too aloof, not too beyond us, exactly the high priest that we need. Thanks be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.